It's Jeff Levering for Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Check out that effortless horizontal window slide and the best lifetime warranties in the industry. Order by April 30th and get 0% for 48 months at PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Yeah, Friday afternoon. Beautiful, beautiful day. And then last night and today, well, welcome to Wisconsin. Hey, we've rolled this out on Friday. Don't just listen. You can now also watch the Jeff Wagner Show and all your favorite WTMJ shows. We are now streaming live on video from our studios at the Avenue. You can watch online at WTMJ.com. You can watch on our mobile app, the WTMJ YouTube page, who knew, and on our social channels. Look while you listen with the WTMJ video stream. And, of course, you can listen anytime you want, anywhere you get your podcasts. We are now there. Saturday morning, walk into the gym. I, I've gone back to the, the gym like three days in a row. You know, I'm working out, doing all that stuff. I walk into the gym. There's a guy on the treadmill. He says, Jeff Wagner. I said, hello. He said, I'm listening to your podcast right now. I said, that's kind of spooky. But, yes, you can listen to the podcasts. We are all around. You can watch the program and we're very, very glad to have you with us. Let us get started. I want to tell you the story about a guy named Gerald Groff, G-R-O-F-F. -F. Here's the deal. Gerald Groff spent many years of his life serving on Christian missionary trips to Mexico, to Africa, to Asia. He um, worked as, a, as an English teacher and other things. So he, he is an evangelical Christian. What happens is, in 2013 or so, he comes back to the United States and he's looking for a job. So he decides, hey, I'm going to apply for a job with the Postal Service. I want to be a rural mail carrier, you know, one of the people that's out there driving one of those trucks and, you know, just driving along the roads and putting mail in people's mailboxes. He says, hey, one of the other things that's going to be good about this job is that I as an evangelical Christian, I want to honor the Sabbath, which means I do not, I do not choose to work on Sunday. You know, I believe that the teaching is such that, you know, you are supposed to, you know, observe the Sabbath and just rest and think about God and things like that. And he said, that's great because the postal service doesn't deliver mail on, on Sunday. So I'm not going to have a problem. So he puts in for a job. He gets hired as a rural mail carrier and he's out there doing his job. Well, that, that works out fine for about a year. And in 2013, what happens is the postal service, which of course is, is financially troubled. I think that's fair. They enter into an agreement with Amazon to deliver packages on Sunday in an effort to boost revenue. All right, so now mail carriers are going to have to work on, on Sundays. Well, when the new schedule takes effect at the, the station where he's working, it's like in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in 2015, originally his bosses tried to accommodate him, and they, had that there, they found that there were sufficient carriers that were available 
so that they would work on Sundays. So they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to make you work on Sunday. So they accommodated him at first. A year after this, 2016, however, the union representing postal workers enters into an agreement with the Postal Service governing Sunday work. Um, and what, what they essentially say is it's, it's got to be based on seniority and things like that. This is what the union does. And as a part-time carrier, um, this guy is now told that he would have to be available to work on Sundays. This is now the union deal, and we, we can't force other people to work on Sundays. As a result, he transfers, follow this, the year after that, he transfers to a smaller station that's not making Sunday deliveries. He said, okay, well, this is what I'll do. There's another station here that's not doing this. Um, soon after he transfers, though, that that postal station begins making Sunday deliveries as well. His new boss originally tries to accommodate him. They try to find other carriers to cover for him. Matter of fact, the boss even has to deliver a mail himself sometimes when nobody's available. Um, he also offers to schedule Groff later on Sunday so he could come in after church. But the problem is that his refusal to work on Sundays creates a problem with many of his other co-workers, many of whom are, are Christians as well, who, who go to church on, on Sunday. And what happens is that they just, they can't find people to cover his shifts for him. I mean, they tried to accommodate him, but they couldn't find enough people to cover his shifts. So ultimately they say, look, we're, we're sorry, but this is the deal. You, you've got to work on Sundays. And what he says is, you know, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to quit. So he quits says, all right, I, I refuse to work on Sundays, so I'm not going to work, and I'm going to resign. All right, so he resigns. So why are we talking about this? He has now brought a lawsuit against the Postal Service and the unions, and that lawsuit is going to be heard in front of the United States Supreme Court tomorrow. What he is arguing is that the Postal Service has an obligation to accommodate his religious beliefs. And the, the argument is that, you know, the, the law is that, you know, you're supposed to accommodate somebody unless it causes an undue hardship. His argument is, well, it, you, you've got to get rid of that undue hardship language. You know, I just I should have an absolute right to not have to work on Sundays because that is what my religious beliefs dictate. And I shouldn't be forced to choose between my religious beliefs and my job. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, the Postal Service tried to accommodate this guy. They, 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 they did. And ultimately, they couldn't, they weren't able to do it. They had shifts to cover, and they couldn't find other people who were willing to work. The union, from its perspective, said, look, this is something that we have negotiated, and working on Sundays is a matter of, it's it, it should be a matter of seniority. And if people who are more senior decide that they don't want to work on Sunday, they should not be forced to do it. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Should the Postal Service be forced to essentially accommodate somebody who says, hey, I'm I'm observing the Sabbath and, you know, you cannot make me work on Sunday. And if they are 
What does that mean moving forward for all sorts of employees? 855-616-1620. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss in just a moment. We are live streaming, and I have to confess, I'm still taking a minute to, to get used to you know being on camera all all that time. But yes, you can check us out, WTMJ.com and a number of other sources. In addition to listening live, if you want to watch and see what we look like, well, it's available now. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Here's the deal. Supreme Court's going to hear this t- case tomorrow. Postal worker, guy goes to work for the Postal Service, says, I don't want to work Sundays. They say, okay, well, first of all, it's not a big problem because he's working at a, it's a rural mail carrier. They, they don't deliver on Sundays. Well, they cut a deal in 2015 with Amazon. Now you got to deliver Sundays. They try to accommodate him. They're able to do that for a while. But ultimately, what happens is they just run out of other people who will work on Sundays. Union cuts a deal with the Postal Service saying that, the, the shifts are supposed to be allocated based on seniority, and people that have a lot more seniority don't want to work on Sunday. So ultimately, he ends up resigning because they're, they're telling him, you know, they're bringing him up for disciplinary charges. All right, should the Postal Service be forced to essentially allow this guy to take off on Sundays because of his religious beliefs and make other people work who otherwise would be entitled to have Sundays off? Let's start with Philip in Milwaukee. Philip, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Uh, one thing I'm going to say is, you know, I used to be in management with the Postal Service. Um, I used to deal with the union a lot. I was a guy who handled grievances and everything like that. Uh, but once you accommodate one employee, you have to be fair across the board. So, you know, um, one thing I've seen postal employees do is when they see one person uh, get out of a day of work, uh, with an excuse, they uh, go talk about it and how to get out of the work and stuff like that. So if they accommodate this one guy for his religious beliefs, you're going to have thousands of other employees who are going to put the same thing. And then they're going to be talking about, well, we got to go to church Sunday. So then you're going to have uh, right. not enough postal workers, which leads to what's called a congressional. Then you'll have people from Congress in the post offices uh, with complaints from uh, customers who are not right. receiving their mail and packages on time on a daily. Yeah, no, no, thanks. So, no, I don't think they should. Right, no, thanks to call, Philip. I, I, I actually, I agree. In this particular case, it seems to me that the, the Postal Service bent over backwards to try to accommodate him. It, first, it was, okay, you know, we're going to try to find other people that cover your shifts. And, and that worked for a little while, but now they're at the point where they can't do that. I mean, the, one of the supervisors even picked up a couple shifts. And you're exactly right, Philip. What what happens moving forward? You know, you're delivering mail seven days a week. So what happens if a bunch of people say, hey, I, I'm, I'm a Christian as well. I want to be able to go to church and observe the, the Sabbath. You know, what happens if... You know, 50% of your workforce decides that they're not going to work on Sundays. Well, you've got to make these deliveries. That's just part of the business. So then do you have to go to the people who aren't Christians, who, who aren't going to go to church on Sundays, or the people who are, you know, agnostics or the people who are Jewish? And, and then and then, how far do you go with this? Do you say to the, the people who are Jewish that, okay, well, you don't have to work, you know, on, on Fridays or during the day on Saturdays? Where do you where do you draw the line? And in this particular case, I mean, I think they made every effort to try to accommodate him. But I don't think you can have or should have this general rule that says, oh, OK, you're, you're able to 
essentially override with with our negotiated schedules and throw out seniority simply because of your personal religious beliefs, which means that that maybe people who are in a situation like this, maybe the circumstances are such that you can't be a mail carrier. Okay, that's fine. That's kind of the nature of the job. 855-616-1620. John in Greenfield. John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Good. What do you think about all this? Um, I, I had the exact experience. I worked at the post office, and uh, I did uh, push my supervisor for religious uh, exemption as a letter carrier to little mail on Saturdays, the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And I was accommodated. So I had an existing transfer in to, for another craft because I had spinal issues anyway. And it, it did take a few months for that to happen, but I was accommodated. I did not work a Saturday for four months. Mm-hmm. Um, until I was slid into another job where it had Friday, Saturdays off. So they were in a position where they were able to find enough people, in your case, to to cover your shift, and there wasn't any problems with it. Absolutely, yeah. So what we have today, though, is the post office, is what they did is they did away with the the delivery fee rule, which allowed uh, the post office to just have people deliver later than than what's really safe out there. It used to be 4.30 for Mm -hmm. winter and 5.30 for summer. But because they did away with that, they're not hiring people because we're just making these carriers just work like patios right. till eight nine o'clock at night. So it's bad service, fewer employees, and that's what they want is fewer employees because fewer employees equals less benefits. Right. You know. Well, John, so thanks I'll- for calling. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I. But again, th- this 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 problem is caused by they, they didn't do Sunday deliveries before. This guy's particular problem was caused because back in 2013 or 2014, the Postal Service cuts this deal with Amazon where they're going to start Sunday deliveries. So that this, this, and they needed to make more money. So as a result of that, you know, they, they hire these, these part-time carriers who were used to just working a couple days a week and not having to work Sundays. Now the nature of the job is that you have to work Sunday. And I look at, I, I understand and I'm not questioning his, his deep-seated religious belief. And I, I think it, it's great. And in your case, it sounds like it was a limited period of time and they were able to find somebody to, uh, they were able to find people to accommodate you. But I guess my point would be if, say, in your situation, it, it went on for, it was going to be a permanent thing, not just, okay, he's going to qualify for a different job, disability, and you, you weren't able to find this. I think at that point in time, you, you, the, the Postal Service has every right to say, look, you know, part of the elements of your job is you just have to work this day. Because how is it fair? To all the other employees, how is it fair to the people that have built up that seniority and decide that they're going to, hey, I, 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 I've been working for the Postal Service for 20 some years. I've got seniority here and you're going to tell me that I've got to work Sundays. I'm used to having my weekend, Saturday and Sunday and, you know, shifts are supposed to be assigned based on seniority. How how is it fair to have somebody comes in and say I've been working for two years and because I want to go to church and I'm not minimizing going to church on Sundays, but it, it might be given the nature of the job that you just can't do it and that's why you find a job that maybe you don't have to work on Sundays. Chris in Cedarburg, Chris, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. You know the thing is the mail must go through and there's people who get their medication. They get uh, packages for businesses. Um, you know, I, it's just it's just ridiculous. I mean, it, it, God is available twenty four seven. Whatever God you believe in, and it's just you know, it's it. We can't change the the you know accommodate everybody, right. and 
And like I said, you know, God be thankful that you have a job, you know, and that things are still remotely functioning. But like I said, you know, people get their medication. Yeah. Um, Right. Packages and and, you know, take 20 minutes and pray or do what you got to do. But I mean, it's just and I don't mean to be callous, but holy cow. No, right. No, I'm with you, Chris. No, no. Thanks, Nicole. No, I mean, or 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 find a different job where you you don't go to work for a place where you don't have to work on on Sundays. And this is I, I just plus if the Supreme Court were to find for him, you want to talk about opening up a huge can of worms, because now this means can everybody come in and say, hey, I'm. You know, fill in the blank. You know, I, I I can't work Friday and Saturdays because of my religion. I can't work Sundays for my religion and, and all these different agreements that you have. And, you know, what does that do for other people who, you know, maybe you, you say, OK, look, I, I like to have my Sundays off. It, it's not to go to church, but I love to spend time. I've been working at a job for 25 years. I've earned the right to have my Sundays off. And no, I don't go to church. But at the same time, I spend Sundays with my kids and we, we have we go to the zoo. We do all this stuff. And now you're telling me that that seniority I've earned, that the thing that I want to do with my time on Sunday mornings is not as valuable or is not protected as somebody who's been working here for a couple years. They want their Sundays off. Well, I've earned my Sundays off. And so I hope the Supreme Court, I mean, I I just look, I I don't know what they're going to do with this particular case. And I'm sympathetic to the guy. And I think this is legitimate interest. But at the same time, he's in the wrong business. If you can't work Sundays and the employer can't accommodate you and it sounds to me like they made an attempt to accommodate him bottom line is find something different to do i mean think about the can of worms here's a text jeff as a nurse i know observing the sabbath wouldn't be enough to remove a nurse from the weekend rotation the nurse would have to go find a job that doesn't include weekends like a clinic job i think the same thing is true for a postal worker jeff i supervised many employees for years in county government and ran into something like this several times long story short if the employer makes a reasonable effort to accommodate the request it's enough and it sounds like the postal service did exactly that i agree completely So very glad to have you with us. Inflation, the return of the bear, 2023 sectors, and answering all of your questions about it. Join Dave Spano from Annex Wealth Management along with Wisconsin's afternoon news host, my buddy John Mercure, for a special webinar, Inflation, Rate Hikes, and Bears. Oh, my. Kind of like the Wizard of Oz stuff, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. It's going to happen this Wednesday, April 19th at 11 a.m. You can register for this free webinar. Did I mention it's free? At our website, WTMJ.com. Click on the Features tab and visit the Annex Wealth Management webinar page. While you're at WTMJ.com, you can also click the Listen Live button, or you can also click the Watch Live button. Because now we have a whole bunch of cameras that are situated around the studio and we we, we webcast, you know, we, we've got the cameras that are working so you can watch us while we do our radio show. It's kind of like State Fair, but every day. And yes, a number of people asking, you're going to be back at State Fair. We will, of course, be back at State Fair. All right. Here's the story. So it was, when did I fly last? Uh, we could go. We could go Wednesday. Came back um, from Florida. So it was on the plane. And as I've said this before, there used to be. If I if I go into the Wayback Machine, it used to be that flying was actually cool. 
The, I, mean, I remember the days of the old Midwest Express Airlines, and you had like the, the side-by-side seating, and it was like two across, two, and then the aisle, and two, and they, they served you good food and things like that, and they were leather seats. Oh, my goodness. It was just, you almost look forward to going through the plane, on a plane. Well, nowadays, I don't think anybody looks forward to the process of traveling by air. You, you, you might look forward to getting where you're going or getting home from where you're going, but, I mean, let's face it, it it's a hassle. You know, airlines are, are packed. As airlines try to make money, what they've done is they've cut back the number of flights that they have. They, you know, most flights are full. I mean, I can't remember the last flight that I've been on that wasn't, if not completely full, wasn't 95% full. In an effort to try to maximize revenue, the truth is these airline seats have gotten smaller. There, there's no doubt about it. And, and trust me, as somebody who's like six one and right around two hundred pounds, I mean, I'm a, I'm I'm not a huge guy, but I'm a big guy, and it's always you know cramming yourself into you know one of these seats for you know a few hours. It, it's it it's not necessarily a pleasant experience, but you just understand it. I mean, that's why I try to go into an airplane with the right attitude, saying, "All right, if if my luggage gets where I'm going and I don't get jacked up too bad at TSA and the flight leaves close to on time and arrives close to on time." I'm going to consider it to be a victory, and I'm going to understand that, you know, the process of flying is not going to be that pleasant. So it's why, you know, if you're flying for significant lengths of time, like you're going to Hawaii or you're going to Europe or something like that, well, and you don't want to be crammed in one of those small seats, well, what you might need to do is consider spending more money and, and you know, buying yourself a seat in business class or in first class or whatever. Otherwise, it just kind of comes with the territory. Which brings me to this story that is out there. As seats have gotten smaller, it is more difficult for, let's say, larger people to fit in these seats. There is, and I saw this story over the weekend, there is, you know, one of these petitions that's out there, the change.org things, and it's been filed by a, a woman who is, she's a, she's a big lady, all right, big, big lady, and her... Her fiance is a big guy. So these are, these are big people. And, you know, what she says is she says, look, the way airlines treat us plus sized people is terrible. She says, you know, my fiance was on a flight recently. He was subjected to hateful comments, disapproving looks, and even a refusal to sit next to him. Um, I think this is discrimination. She says on another flight, she was forced to occupy only one seat with immovable armrests. It caused me pain and bruises. So I assume, you know, what happens is her fiance doesn't fit in the seat that he is in. And he's sort of overlapping into other people's seats. And those people are probably kind of giving the guy a dirty look saying, hey, look, I, you know, I paid for my seat. You are being invasive about this. So here's what the petition says. The petition says that the FAA needs to require airlines to do better when it comes to accommodating larger passengers, including alternative seating arrangements, seatbelt extenders, and larger seats. Quote, all plus-size passengers should be provided with an extra free seat or even two or three seats, depending on their size, to accommodate their needs and to ensure their comfort during the flight. 
And this, of course, should be done at no charge to them. So if your caboose is so big that you take up, I don't know, two spaces, the airlines should be required to give you two seats for the price of one. Other demands include creating airline standards on booking, refunds, check-in, boarding, and flight procedures for plus-size people. The petition also calls for larger-sized bathrooms for plus-size travelers, priority boarding for plus-size travelers, and other sorts of assistance. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. So what this lady, and there, as, as you might expect, there's thousands of people who have signed this. She's saying, look, if, if my caboose is too big to fit in one seat, the airline should be required to give me a second seat or a third seat for free. The airline should be required to have larger seats in the cabins. The airline should be required to retrofit the airplanes so that they are, the bathrooms are larger. 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, what do you think about this, and and how far does this go? What if you're, I don't know, what if you're 6'5"? I mean, I'm I'm 6'1", and... Getting into some of those seats, I mean, it's kind of uncomfortable. There's not a lot of leg room. I can't imagine what it's like for somebody who's 6'4 or 6'5. Should the airlines be required to have more leg room? What do you think? Is this something that it, you either, I mean, you just recognize it, and if you're a plus-size traveler and the airline doesn't have you know, two seats that they can give you, should you just have to buy another one or find another way of traveling? 855-616-1620. We discuss in just a moment. Jet Airliner. Yeah, if you're just tuning in, there's this lady that's filed this petition with the FAA saying that the way plus-size passengers are handled needs to be changed. Airlines should be forced to give away extra seats for free, to enlarge the seats, to retrofit the planes so the bathrooms are bigger, all to accommodate plus-size travelers. See, to me, this is a, a free market thing. First of all, if there's enough oversized people that are willing to, you know, fly together, it seems to me this is, you you, you know, they, there's a big company there that will build the plane to, to do that. Um, otherwise, this is unfortunately one of the problems with flying. And just like... I, as somebody who's 6'1", who doesn't like to kind of be crunched into seats, if I want to deal with that, well, then what I can do is I can find an airline that flies where I'm going and I can buy a first-class ticket. And otherwise, it's just kind of live with it. If your caboose is too big to fit into one seat, then I, I think you should be required to buy a second seat. Now, the airlines, and somebody was telling me, well, Southwest has this policy of if somebody buys two seats, and it turns out that the plane is not completely full, Southwest will look at giving you a refund, which I think is a wonderful business thing to do. But the bottom line is I don't think you should be entitled to free extra seats. And I don't think in the real world, how do you retrofit the bathrooms for this? And if you can't, if, if it doesn't work for you to fly coach on some airlines because of your weight, well, then the answer is, all right, maybe figure out a different way to get there. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Alex in West Bend. Hi, Alex. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. 
I basically traveled full time for over 20 years in business, you know, and it was the good years from like 85 to 2005 when, mm-hmm. when people, you know, the seats were larger. Right. But I think this is really a silly idea to or a silly petition, because if it ever goes through, you know, I would claim that I weigh 250 pounds so I can get that extra seat. Right. Everybody Plus, would. On a more on a more realistic point of view. For every extra pound you weigh as a person, you know, it costs the airline X amount of dollars more to fly you, you know. So if you weigh 150 pounds or you weigh 300 pounds, it's going to cost the airlines an extra a lot of money yeah, well, <laughs> just in fuel alone. Well, right. I mean, I'm thanks, which knows. might be one. Thanks, Nicole, which might be one of the reasons why you, you don't see this starting up. Somebody notes, OK, well, if if the larger people are going to want that extra seat for free, what about the petite people, the people with like the small cabooses and stuff like that? Should, should they be able to fly for half price? Jeff, my wife and I are uh, a little are we're a little bit of bigger people. We fly business or first class all the time. I don't feel that it's the airline's job to accommodate for our side. Otherwise, if two people are going to be in three seats so you have more room, there are options. Just because you're big doesn't mean the airlines should bow down to you. Well, I guess that's kind of the the point that's that's kind of the point that's there. Um, Jeff, buy two tickets. Well, that's kind of it. Jeff, I am a plus-size traveler, but do not expect the airline to make special accommodations for me. However, I do feel that site sizes could be increased overall to accommodate all travelers. All that's been done in recent years is trying to stuff more people into each flight with no consideration for the comfort of those travelers. Well, look, I, I'm not going to argue uh, about that point. I think the answer to that is, uh, again, a free market sort of thing. The airliner that comes out and says, the airplane that comes out and says, all right, here, here is the deal. You know, we've, we hear you. We understand that nobody likes to be compressed into these, these tiny seats. So we're, we're going to be the airline that's retrofitted the planes and we're going to take out two or three rows so you can have a little bit more leg room or, or whatever. Now, I think that would be a great marketing thing to do and might be an appeal. But at the end of the day, let's face it, for most people, when it comes to making your air travel decision, it's it's two factors. It's cost. What's the cheapest way that you can get there? And it's convenience. It's okay. Is it a direct flight? How many? You know, what time does it leave? You know, do I have to make connections and all those things? And, and that's that's what's always going to drive things. So yeah, you could come out and say, "Hi, this is this is Charlie Airlines, and what we've done is we've got extra room, and you're going to have a few inches of extra leg room, and we're going to do all this." But you know what? If Charlie Airlines is charging seventy-five or a hundred dollars more than other airlines to go to the same location, most people aren't going to sign up with Charlie. Airlines. That's just kind of the reality of this. Uh, let's talk to Dwayne in Milwaukee. Dwayne, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, first time uh, caller, long time listener. How thank are you, you sir. I am well, thank you. All right, this is what motivated you to pick up the phone and dial. What do you think? <laughs> well, I'm six four, and I travel uh, maybe three or four times a year, mostly on pleasure. Uh, I would be open to panel fee. For better accommodation, I don't think I would pay for a full price ticket to uh, right. uh, accommodate me, but I would be open to paying a, a slightly larger fee uh, to make my travel a little more pleasant. Do you think most people would? Because, you know, like I said earlier, when they, when they do these studies, most people 
while they'd like to have that extra leg room or they'd like to have the slightly wider seat, most people, though, it's sure. kind of like, hey, I, I, I want the direct flight or I, I, want, um, I want the lowest price. You, you, think more, you think people would be willing to pay extra, huh? I do, yeah, I, I would, and and I think I know there are, there are guys in my in my category that that would agree with me. I think so. Yeah, well, thanks for calling. You know, I, I again, this is and that's why. Now, I'm, I'm I typically fly Southwest, um, just because Southwest, the places I go, Southwest has a direct flight to you know my 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 second place in in Florida and stuff, and so it, it's the easiest way to get there. Southwest flies direct to some of the other places I go, like Las Vegas, so I tend to use Southwest a lot. And Southwest, it, it's kind of one size fits all. There's not the business class, there's not the you know the Coach Plus class or whatever that other airlines have. And I, I guess to me, it, it's a marketing sort of thing. If I was on if I was on a lengthier flight when we've flown. For example, in some of our listener trips, when we've flown to Europe and things like that, I, I'm willing to pay a little bit extra to have a little bit more room on a six or a seven hour flight. If candidly, if I was just, it's a two hour, two and a half hour flight, would I be willing to pay a lot extra? No, I can tough it out for two hours. But I guess to me, this is a free market thing. And that's where the issue comes in. This idea that the airlines should be forced by the government to accommodate or give free um, give give free seats or things, or how in the world are you going to retrofit those bathrooms? And it's not that I'm unsympathetic to you know the plus size people, but this is one that goes back to Wagner's rule of life number one that we originated when we started the show over 25 years ago, which is life is tough, get a helmet. And the, the truth is, if there was ever cachet about air travel, that cachet is gone. So you just have to deal with it and da- adapt. And if you don't like it or it's too uncomfortable or whatever, well, there are other, are other ways of, of getting around. All right, we've got a lot of stuff coming up in the 1 o'clock hour of the program, including, I don't know, something that they're doing in California that will have an appeal to some people in Wisconsin and a very provocative article in the New York Post, which is going to have potheads angry I can tell because I posted it on my Twitter account, and I'm getting all sorts of angry responses. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. That was an interesting first hour. Let's keep it rolling. Uh, by the way, for people who have been following the lawsuit brought by Dominion against, uh, which they're the company, the outfit that makes the voting machines, against um, Fox, Fox News, that the jury selection was supposed to start today. It's been pushed off for a day. The judge encouraged settlement talks in an effort to kind of make this case go away. So I I don't know if there's anything that's on the table. This, of course, is being watched from a number of different perspectives, because on the one hand, you have a lot of people in the mainstream media that cannot stand Fox News. At the same time, the concern is, all right, could a big jury award in a case like this, could this, I mean, change the way defamation suits are considered in the future and make it more likely that the New York Times or the Washington Post or some of those other outlets would be held responsible as well for some of their reporting. So you've got that issue going. To me, one of the things, now Dominion is suing for 1.6 B as in billion dollars. And, and they claim that that's what their damages are. I, I think 
This is one where, candidly, as somebody who doesn't, I, I don't claim to be a defamation lawyer or an expert in that, but I, I think there's no question. I think they have a very, very good case, and you've, you've seen all these emails. I mean, I think a lot of the people at Fox News were knowingly and intentionally you know, putting out false information about these voting machines, knowing that it was false. And it's something that you just kind of like roll your eyes and say, okay, I understand why they were doing this, because they were trying to pander to some of their audience. But at some point in time, don't you have to have a good faith basis in some of the arguments you're making? And, and not even necessarily good faith. When, when you know when you know that a, a story is, is untrue, or you have significant doubts in that, I, I think you as a broadcaster have a responsibility to either not say these things or alternatively to just um, maybe just ignore the topic altogether. So I I think there's definitely some potential liability there. At the same time, to me, I don't see see the $1.6 billion in damages. If nothing else, I mean, I think Dominion's going to have a tough time showing that as a result of any of this coverage that they they lost – Anything that did they lose voting machine business Did states stop doing business with them because of the Fox News broadcasts? I think that's that's their real trouble is trying to prove that there were any material damages. If anything, you can argue that all this publicity, what are the, what's the thing that people say that, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity? Well, you can argue that maybe some of this publicity uh, publicity has actually been a boon to their business. So do, do I think they have a case? Yeah, I think I think. I would not want to be one of the attorneys defending Fox News on the merits of this. At the same time, when it comes to damages, it strikes me that $1.6 billion billion is completely out of line. So I would not be surprised if at some point in time, before this case goes to a verdict, that there is that there is a some sort of resolution of this matter. And the resolution is going to be Fox News paying Dominion something. Is it going to be close to $1.6 billion? No. If a jury awards $1.6 billion, will that stand up on appeal? I, I think that's highly doubtful. But if you're wondering why jury selection didn't kick off today, it's been put on hold till tomorrow with the the judge trying to encourage the parties to see if they can resolve something. I, I was talking about Medicare with somebody the other day. Gee, Jeff, you must lead an exciting life talking to somebody about Medicare. I was, it, we, we just got into this conversation because they were approaching the age for Medicare eligibility. And we were talking about just how confusing all the different Medicare things are, which is why you see so many ads on television, you hear so many ads on the radio, people talking about, well, you've got Medicare, you've got Medicare Advantage, which is is different than, than Medicare. And it it is really very confusing. And, I mean, my recommendation to everybody is you really need to find somebody who, who's an advisor who can walk you through these kind of things. Because I was going through a couple of details with somebody, and they said, I didn't know that, and I didn't know that. Or is that how that really works? And I said, yeah, you know, that's why you really got to sit down with somebody, and you got to make these decisions. But here's something that a lot of people don't know about basic Medicare. Medicare... The coverage is the same for everybody who gets on it. Let's put, put Medicare Advantage away for, aside for a minute. Okay, basic Medicare, people get on Medicare. The coverage is the same. The price you pay for Medicare is different. What do you mean, Jeff? It's different. No, no, no. It's based on your income. And there are these tables. They call it um what they do is they call it income-related monthly adjustment, IRMA, I-R-M-A-A. you got to love the acronyms. So here's the bottom line. 
the amount of money you pay every month if you qualify for Medicare is dependent on how much your adjusted gross income is. So if you and your spouse, I'm looking at the current tables, if you and your spouse have $194,000 or less, you pay a basic premium for Part B, which is the the, the standard, the, the Medicare thing. Everybody gets Part A for free. But you pay 165 bucks, roughly. If your income is between 194 and 246,000, you pay 230 bucks. If your income is between 246 and 306, you pay 329. If it's between 306 and 366, you pay 428. 366 and 750, you pay 527. And then if you make more than $750,000 a year, it's $560. But but it's it's means tested. Your coverage, the person that's paying 164 bucks a month doesn't get any extra or any more coverage than the person who's paying $560 a month. It's all just based on what your income is. And the idea is if you are wealthier, you should have to pay more for the same coverage, despite the fact that you know you probably you know paid more into Medicare over over the course of your lifetime, but it's just the way it works. You pay not based on what you use, not based on what's available for you to use. You pay solely based on what your income is. That's how Medicare works. Well, in California, they are trying to move towards having utilities charge electricity for electricity on the same basis. Now, I I have in my hands this new charge, and this is what they are doing in California. They are saying what we want to do is we are going to impose a charge, a fixed cost that is going to go to everybody's utility bill, everybody's electric bill. And here is how it's going to work. If you are in a household that earns less than $28,000 a year, you will pay a fixed charge of $15, and you'll pay for the electricity that you use. All right? If if your income is between $28,000 and $69,000, you will pay a fixed charge of $20 a month, and then, you know, whatever your costs are for your energy. If you're in a household that earns between $69,000 and $180,000, you pay $51 a month, um, and then what your electric costs are. And if you live in a home with an income above $180,000, you pay $85 a month in this particular territory. So the difference is, again, if you're in a low-income household, less than twenty eight grand a year, you pay a fixed charge of 15 bucks. If you're in a home where it's $180,000 or above, you pay $70 more. You pay $85 a month and then whatever your costs are. But your fee, your fixed fee, is not based on usage. It's not based on location. It's not based on the time of day that you draw stuff down. It's based purely on your income. And that decides how much you are going to pay. Now, again, then you also pay for usage. But this fixed fee has relates to nothing other than your income. Higher income people paying a higher fee for the same service that lower income people pay for. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, this is... 
this is this is socialism pure and simple. I mean, there is no doubt about this. I mean, this is the story I'm looking at says California going full commie. I mean, this is the communist manifesto from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. All right. What do you think about fixed fees for utilities based not on usage, but based solely on income? 855-616-1620. We do it with Medicare. Should we do it with utilities? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, so here's what they're looking at doing in California. If you're just tuning in for uh, electricity charges, utility charges, what they are going to do is they're going to impose a fixed cost. So everybody has to pay a certain amount of money, and then you also have to pay for the electricity you use. But the fixed cost is going to be determined by your income. So low income families are going to pay fifteen bucks. A month, and then it's going to go up. And gradually, if you make more than one hundred eighty thousand adjusted gross income of more than one hundred eighty thousand, you'll have to pay eighty five dollars a month. Same same basic service. You get nothing extra. It's just you're going to have to pay this fixed fee based on your adjusted gross income. It's not unlike essentially what they do with with Medicare. You don't get anything more if you make. $400,000 a year than you do if you make, you know, $75,000 a year, but you have to pay a lot more for the same thing. Is that fair? Is that right? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Dave in Greenfield. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? Um, uh, yeah. Um, here's the thing that I was just telling the fellow on the phone there to answer. Um, to a point, because... There are people that I know personally that abuse the low-income system as far as the electric and gas, stuff like that, because they get, they get you know, help from the city and the county, the government, whatever it is, for utilities every year. You know, and then mm-hmm. you come to find out you got your heat on 75, 80 degrees, mm-hmm. got lights on all night, electric heaters. I mean, I would say to a point, if you're within the average household for the size of your house, if you're in within the average of that cost, yes, then I could see it. If you go over it, then you should would have to pay the overage. Okay. Well, Dave, I mean, now this is slightly different because you still have to pay for the electricity that you use, the, the way it would work in California. So to your point, for the person that's got the electric heat and the person that's um, got the, the – it turned up to 75 or 80, they'd still have to pay for, like, the kilowatts they use. But this fee that they would put in would be based solely based on, on people's income. You get nothing else beyond that. 855-616-1620. Jeff, another reason to leave California, it's pure socialism. Yes, it is. I mean, it it, it is – pure socialism for an eco-friendly state it also disincentivizes any conservation of energy well not necessarily because you do have to also again pay for what you use but it is it's it's pure socialism i mean there's just no question about it um jeff what are they doing with the extra money and who gets it well what's ultimately going to happen is it's ultimately a transfer because the $15, for example, the low-income housing payments, the low-income homes are paying, that, that's less 
that's less than the cost of, of what the utilities are. So the people who are paying $85, a portion of their $85 is going to go to subsidize the people who are, are paying the 15 or the 20 bucks. This is, at the end of the day, this is a transfer of, of money. But again, it's the same sort of services that you are getting. Jeff, why stop with electricity? Let's move to water utilities and sewers as well. Well, I guess that that's the question. What and then why stop with any utilities? I mean, why don't we do this with just everything that's out there? And this is a particularly interesting conversation given the fact that what income taxes are due to be filed tomorrow. I think the eighteenth is the year this year, I think they're due by the eighteenth. Don't hold me to that. It might be today, but I think it's actually tomorrow. So, I mean, why we, we have this whole transfer of wealth system that, that's going on here. And that's, you know, that's what is going on. Um, Jeff, so is this simply a service fee? Come on. I, I think it's it's ridiculous. Right. It's a service fee, but it's based on income. One of the other things is you want to talk about you want to talk about practical problems. How in the world do you enforce something like this? Now, Medicare is able to enforce this because Medicare is part of the Social Security system. So, you know, Social Security keeps track of what people's incomes are, and you've got access to the IRS things. So Medicare, I mean, if you – Medicare can – can figure out, you know, how much people are, are making. But, you know, can you imagine in California, people, oh, how, how much money did you make last year? Well, okay, I made 140000 Well, all right, we want you to provide your tax records for that, or how are they going to verify this? This is, it's a logistical nightmare. But beyond that, it just strikes me as fundamentally unfair to say to somebody, all right, you're going to have to pay a lot more for the same service as somebody else. You get absolutely nothing, but simply because, you know, you are more well-off, we're going to put this charge in for you. I mean, it's not like we don't have enough income redistribution going on in this country. One of our texts, Jeff, my wife works for Theta Care. That's the hospital system that's merging with, with Freighter. And the health insurance premiums they charge their employees are based on income. I think it's ridiculous, but I guess it's a private business, so they get to decide what they do. Right, well, right. I mean, your, your health insurance is your health insurance. And, you know, why should, why should, I don't know, one employee pay more for the same coverage than the other employee pays? I guess it's a private employer, but this is this is this is the whole Karl Marx thing, you know. From the people that have it, let's redistribute it to the people who don't, in big ways and in small ways. Don't just listen; you can now also watch the Jeff Wagner Show. That's what you're listening to right now, and all of your favorite WTMJ shows. We are streaming live on video from our studios at the Avenue. You can watch online through our website, WTMJ.com, through the mobile app, through the WTMJ YouTube page. Who knew we had a YouTube page? And on our social channels. Look while you listen with the WTMJ video stream. One of our listeners said, "Hey, nice fleece that you're wearing." Yeah, I thought I'd put away these fleeces for the year, but now when I woke up and saw snow on the ground, that uh, got rid of that. Hey, also, join WTMJ as we support the Brewers Community Foundation benefiting the Wisconsin Humane Society. Thursday, April 20th, that is this Thursday, in the parking lot at American Family Field, the Brewers will be accepting donations to benefit those pets sheltered at the Humane Society. Blankets, towels, beds, food, etc. No matter how small the donation, anything helps. 
Donations start at 7 a.m. Again, on Thursday, April 20th, the Brewers will also be accepting donations during their homestand against the Red Sox. That kicks off a week from Friday, April 21st through the 23rd inside American Family Field. That would be this Friday, the 21st. Okay, I want to... I want to share with you, and if you follow me on Twitter, I posted this on on Saturday and got some, eh, I got some predictably nasty responses to it, but that's okay. Um, it's a, a piece that appears in the New York Post, and it's I understand that there are people who feel aggressively that we should legalize marijuana in this state, and not only medical marijuana, but we should legalize recreational marijuana and tax it. And then, you know, the world will be great if we let everybody go around and smoke dope. And the argument is that people do it anyway, so it's not a deterrent and that there's not going to be any more people smoking dope. I'm not sure I buy that. But anyhow, this is a piece in the New York Post, and I want to share it with you. It's not that long. I'll read it to your entirety, and then we will discuss. Here's the column. Let's be blunt. Legal weed is turning New York workers into zombies. The Big Apple is now the Big Blunt, not just because decriminalized marijuana led to proliferating mayhem in the five boroughs, not just because the stinky smoke hangs everywhere, seeping into subway cars and even Broadway theaters. The acrid odor I detected in the crowded men's room of the Majestic Theater a few weeks ago was not from the Phantom of the Opera's smoke machine. It's also because of a forbidden to utter truth. In an age where raising the minimum wage even higher has become a mantra, namely a license to get high, has turned service employees into zombies. I've lived in the city all my life. I've never had to repeat my highly complex Starbucks order. I want a tall coffee. Three times to get a response from the bummed out barista the way I do now. Bob Dylan's lyric, Everybody Must Get Stoned, is now apparently in the employee's handbook at most every place requiring customer interaction. My friend Shelley Clark, a restaurant consultant, observed, too often any question or request is met with a vacant look and a very much by rote, no problem, man. The piece continues. That's actually nice compared to the hostile glares I get for interrupting stay-out-of-my-space reveries. It's time to lower the minimum wage. Why not when so many workers in stores, restaurants, dry cleaners, you name it, have turned hopelessly stunad, as the Italian people say. The word means dumb, but sounds eerily similar to so many service employees' doped-up conditions. They're stoned up the wazoo, hollow-eyed, disengaged from their tasks, their breath reeking of weed. Did Grubhub bring you General Chow's chicken when you ordered chicken burritos? Blame the delivery guy's favorite hangouts, e.g. the smoke and draft shop across from my building on First Avenue at East 75th Street, where a sidewalk knife fight recently sent two of them to the hospital. I gave a guy at a restaurant a $20 bill for an $8 cup of soup. I asked for a bag. He took the 20 and promptly forgot the soup, my change, the bag, and me. He wandered off. inexplicably waving my Andrew Jackson like a flag until I appealed to his colleagues. I haven't seen so much pot-induced lethargy since my Vietnam-era college days when so many fellow students were high that their panicked weed flushing during a rumored police raid overwhelmed the campus pipes. Now our whole pot-pickled city is that campus. 
at Upper East Side Gourmet Food Emporium. Um, one cashier was so out of it, staring into space while people waited in line. A bank executive who's a regular customer there told me she forgot to give me she, my change. She closed the register. I had to wait for someone to come with the dreaded key. After 10 minutes for a 30 second transaction, she didn't even apologize. Responding to a tweet I posted about discombobulated workers, a fellow, a follower wrote to say that the woman running into the service desk at a major Sunset Park auto dealer was clearly high, had no idea what was going on, lost my car twice during the routine service. Um, real estate man Jordan Cohn tweeted, I just had a restaurant server lose my credit card. Yep, gone, never to be seen again. My best guess is that it went into the trash by accident. Our progressive pals are throwing our city into the trash, and it's no accident. That is a piece in the New York Post. I have it posted on my Twitter account. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, I understand that there's all sorts of people out there who say, look, Pot is no worse than alcohol, and we should legalize this and decriminalize it, and we're going to generate all this money through tax revenue and things like that. And okay, I, I I appreciate that. I guess the question is, if you do this, is this experience that this guy's writing about in New York, where everybody is showing up stoned, is that likely to happen here? Now the argument is that oh no people if the fact that it's that it's illegal now doesn't stop people from doing it well I'm sorry I I I reject that idea I I believe that if you legalize it and decriminalize it there is no question that you're going to have more people who are going to be showing up at work on a regular basis stoned out of their minds but do we care? 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, is this unfair? Uh, Guy's observation about what's happened once pot has been legalized, namely, you had all these service workers that are showing up, and I wouldn't necessarily limit it to service workers, people who are showing up stoned out of their mind. Will this be more likely to happen if we do what other states in the Midwest have done, which is legalize pot? 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. Yeah, that was one of the easier get-backs we've had on the, the show today. 855-616-1620. If you're just tuning in, I, and I have this story. It's posted on, on Twitter, and it's, it, it's, it's by a guy in New York City who's just talking about his observations that since they legalized marijuana in, in New York City, everybody, especially in the service industry, is showing up stoned, and it's, it's annoying him. 855-616-1620. Could that happen here? Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. I think these people are mistaking the legalization of recreational weed for permission to be irresponsible and inconsiderate in their marijuana use. And if we, if recreational marijuana is ever legalized in Wisconsin, I really think there needs to be some ground rules about where and when people can use marijuana. And I think employers should be encouraged to take discipline against their employees who do show up stoned or have pot hangovers that are so bad they can't do their jobs. Well, you know, and it's going to be tougher to measure that, Jeff, because and people are saying, well, you know, you, you can't show up at work drunk, but it, but it's easier to measure the people that, that 
that, that show up drunk. Hey, you're slurring your words, you reek of alcohol, and, and here we can do a blood alcohol test and we can determine that. Pot is much, much tougher to measure in that regard. And I think it, it is, I think it's going to be a challenge. And there's no question that I think that the stories that this guy's telling, I think it's more than anecdotal. My guess is this is much more widespread than people want to acknowledge. Yeah, well, I, I understand that's going to be tough, but I think there are, there's other things that can be done. For example, I think there should be designated pot smoking areas, um, f- you know, for places like that theater that, that'll hopefully uh, help solve that problem as well. Yeah, and I think, thanks for your call. De- designated pot smoking areas. Uh, Steve from West Allen says, Jeff, I don't smoke pot, but if it was legal, I would try it. So I think you're correct. Making it legal would certainly bring in more users. I, I just, I don't think you can argue that. Um, I mean, I don't think you can seriously argue it. The fact that pot is illegal, and I understand there's all sorts of people that that smoke pot, but the fact that it is illegal, I think, discourages some people from doing it. If you legalize it, you normalize it. And I guess that becomes the question. And I, I, by the way, I refuse to get into the debate about, well, what's worse, marijuana or, or alcohol? I guess the question to me is, all right, if we assume that alcohol has all these these bad sort of things, all right, what, why do we, even if we want to say that, okay, pot is no worse than alcohol and maybe a little bit better, why do you want to legalize and normalize something else that might lead to some of these prob- other problems as, as well? But, I, again, I get the argument here. I'm just saying I thought it was kind of funny that you've got all these workers who are now showing up stoned. Uh, Mark in Watertown. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, I was talking to my insurance agent the other day about the issue of legalizing marijuana in Wisconsin. And he brought something to light for me that I was not aware of. But in Colorado, they have had such an increase in accidents while under the influence that their automobile rates have doubled there really i don't want my automobile rates doubling here because someone's driving under the influence yeah well i mean i mean that's part of the thing that that comes now mark the argument that some people would have is say okay it's not it's not going to lead to more usage and it's it's just it's a zero something the same people that are driving stoned now are going to be driving stoned if it was in fact legalized that's the argument and i guess i just I have trouble with that argument. And by the way, a couple of people are texting me. I I have chronic pain. Why? Who are you to say that I shouldn't have it? There, to me, and I've made this point over the years, there is a huge difference, in my opinion, between medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. Medical marijuana, completely different story. I mean, you're talking to somebody who lost his first wife to, uh, to liver cancer, and and I I agree completely. I mean, they prescribe. If you're in a situation where you know you've got cancer, for example, and they're prescribing, you know, high-end opioids to help you deal with pain and, and things like that, I, I, I agree completely. Why shouldn't they prescribe some degree of marijuana if it can ease the pain and help build up your appetite? But that, that's different than recreational marijuana, and I think that's where the state is going to go ultimately. Um, um, 855-616-1620. Jeff, businesses can still drug test their employees even if it's legal. Well, yes, that, that's exactly right. They can. Um, it becomes kind of a little bit more difficult. And part of the problem is that marijuana stays in your system for quite a while. It, unlike alcohol, which is going to be out of your system 
but you know you could you could make the argument hey i just i smoked pot last thursday night and it's still showing up in my system when i show up monday i i wasn't really coming to work you know high so it's it's going to create a, a huge problem. But I bring the story up again. It's regardless of how you feel about legalized marijuana. And, and I understand. I read the polls. I, I get it that the majority of people in this state seem to think that this would be a good idea. And I know the governor says, hey, we're losing all this tax revenue. We should we should legalize this and then we should collect the money. OK, that that's that's great. But I don't hear much conversation about the flip side of this which is there's going to be some additional societal cost. And if you don't think you're going to have more of the baristas showing up stoned and the service industry people showing up stoned and the bus drivers showing up stoned and other workers showing up stoned, I think you're just simply naive. This is one of our texts. Jeff, a friend of mine works in administration in a local dealer group here in Milwaukee, and one of the managers brought up that they should start testing for marijuana. The owner came back and said, we'd lose half of our employees and not be able to function if we still did. Yeah, that's 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 great here. I want the guys shuttling the cars around to be smoking pot on their brakes. Well, it's just I understand. I understand it's going to happen. And then we'll wrestle with the issues that come from that five or 10 years down the road. Speaking of issues that come from bad decisions. Teen accused of driving red Hyundai in Kia Boys video pleads guilty. Markel Hughes, a teen from the 2022 Kia Boys YouTube video, pled guilty Thursday to felony charges in connection with the viral footage. He pled guilty to one count of operating a vehicle without an owner's consent, also pled guilty to another felony charge in a separate case, and they dropped other stuff. This is the guy... This is the guy who's like driving through a Milwaukee neighborhood in the stolen car um, along, and he allows himself to be filmed doing this stuff. Back when I was a prosecutor, we used to use the phrase felony dumb, and it's like sometimes you got to work really hard to catch these criminals. Other times, well, they're what we would call low-hanging fruit. You know, here, I'm going to do an interview showing myself driving the stolen car, and I'm going to brag about it. What could possibly Go wrong. Well, in the case of Markel Hughes, my guess is he will be get a guest of the state of Wisconsin for at least the next few years. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. One final thought on our pot topic from a listener across the pond. Jeff, Michigan Pot Shops are starting to go bankrupt as there is a race to the bottom for sales. Turns out Michigan allows a person to own 12 plants. If you harvest 12 plants twice a year, that's like 20 pounds of cultivated pot, which gets sold on the black market or given to friends. The state thinks only 20% of pot sales are actually through pot shops. So there is really no tax benefit with that little amount of pot getting taxed, and the shop has to compete with personal growth sales undercutting their market. It's not working out well here. If they restricted growth to four plants, maybe, but 12, that's a lot of pot for one person to smoke. Interesting. Now, the, the reason that that hit home is because my wife, she she bought a basil plant. No, not a pot plant. But, you know, she said, uh, you know, she said, have you seen how much basil costs? And so she bought a little basil plant, grew her own basil in the kitchen counter. And it was and she said, we've been we've been eating the, the, the basil we use. I, I she said, I can't imagine how much money that I have saved. Well, how much money can save on basil? But but it was like, hey, I'm just I've got my little basil plant. 
Yeah, maybe if they legalize marijuana, maybe Fran will start growing like little pot plants on our on our kitchen table. I doubt that, but I'm just I throw that out there. All right, let us switch gears, and I, I want to revisit something that we've talked about a couple of times. But I saw this story over the weekend, and I, I found myself screaming at the radio and at my computer screen. We we have talked at length about the problems with, with Northridge Shopping Center, right? It, it's, it's no secret, and you know my story. I mean, I grew up in, in, in the North Shore. Northridge was the place that you would – it was the place to go when you – if you were a kid in the 70s and the 80s and even into the early 90s, it, it, was, it was a thriving thing. Restaurants and movie theaters, it was a place you'd go to hang out. Lots of shopping. It brought people in from surrounding areas. And then for a variety of reasons, it just all went down the drain. And Northridge has been just it's been closed for the last 20 years. Um, There's nothing going on there. It is an eyesore and it has been an eyesore. And the city of Milwaukee has correctly, in my opinion, they have been undertaking efforts to try to force the company that owns it, this Black Spruce Enterprises, to try to force the company that owns this to clean it up or turn it over to them. And one of the things that they want to do is they want to have essentially the building condemned. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But they want to come in and they want to tear down, they want to raise, R-A-Z-E, raise the building. It's going to cost, to tear down the buildings, it's going to cost $15 million. And the city won't say where it's going to get the $15 million to just level the the buildings. But that's what they want to do. They want to spend $15 million that they do not have, tear down the buildings. So the the outfit that owns Northridge, this like uh, Black Spruce Enterprises, they've worked out this deal. They have a potential buyer, Phoenix Investments, which is a local a local real estate company that has holdings in Milwaukee but has holdings all over the rest of the country. Phoenix has come in, and Phoenix has said, look, we're willing to buy this this place. We're willing to take it off the hands of – it's not going to be a problem for the city, etc. But here's here's the deal. What we want to do with this space is we want to use it for essentially industrial storage. That's That's what we want to do with this. And we need a zoning change in order to do that, because right now the building is essentially um, it's zoned for retail type of use. So they say, OK, look, give us give us a zoning change. We're going to repurpose this. Um, and, and what we'll what we're going to do is we'll use it for storage. We believe that if we do this, our plans might create as many as 400 to 500 jobs for, you know, what we're, we're going to do. Um, we can create four to 500 jobs, and it's, it's not going to cost the city a dime. Okay, just, just give us the zoning change, all right? So on Friday, the city rolls into court, and they say to the judge, nope, this is, this is not good enough. We, we want you, Judge, to order the property essentially condemned. We're going to tear this down. We're going to come up with the $15 million to do it somewhere. And our objection is because industrial storage, what this, this private enterprise operation has, the city says industrial storage does not promote meaningful job growth. 
It is not compatible with the community's redevelopment goals based on past public visioning sessions, whatever the hell that means. And then they go on to say, look, so here, here's the deal. We want to turn this into retail. We want to maybe turn this into residential. We want to try to recreate essentially Northridge or some variation of like it was in 1985. So here, let's let's not go ahead with the zoning change. Let's kill this deal with Phoenix investors and give it to us. We'll try to come up with $15 million to tear down the buildings, although we don't know where we're going to get that $15 million. And then once the city owns it, we're going to be able to repurpose it. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. I, I'm, I'm, I was watching this, I was listening to this, I was reading about it, and my head is exploding. Look, Northridge is an urban cesspool. It, it is unfortunate, but the reality is it is never, ever going to regenerate into what it was into 1985. And for the people in the city to say, well, you know, we, we don't like the fact that it's going to be industrial storage. You know, we, we don't think that that's the best use. We want hotels. We want thriving retail. Okay, explain to me where that's going to come from. And where, I mean, first of all, first of all, you've got all sorts of other challenged areas in the city. Nobody has been able to make a go of it for the last 25 years. What do you think is going to happen? What magic wand are you going to wave? Where is the money going to come from to tear down these buildings? And if you've got a private enterprise, a private company that's willing to say, hey, look, we're, we're going to take this problem child off of everybody's hands. It's not going to cost the public a dime. And, and by the way, you know, we're going to generate a couple hundred jobs. Yes, it's not going to be like Northridge in 1985, but there's nothing the city can do that's going to make it Northridge in 1985. 855-616-1620. This is one of the most staggeringly stupid decisions that I have seen coming from the city of Milwaukee. And I understand that 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 encompasses a lot of stuff. I understand that encompasses the trolley. I, I get that. But here you have a private business that's willing to come in and repurpose it. Nobody... The city, I get it. The city, it's this pie-in-the-sky stuff. Well, you know, we'd like to have this. We'd like to have that. I'd like to be able to eat apple pie all day and not get fat. It's not the way the real road runs. It's not the way the real world works. There's not, there's not interest in that site, and there's not going to be interest in that site in probably your lifetime or my lifetime. So, You've got a company that's willing to put its own money up. They say, okay, industrial storage, we're going to generate 400 jobs. No, that's not 5,000 jobs. But I don't think anybody in the city has any plans for 5,000 jobs either. You know, and, and there's other areas as well. This is the same city of Milwaukee that ended up, because of uh, politics, killing the effort that uh, Strauss was having to, to move into the old you know, Century City type of buildings you know, on Capitol Drive. I mean, this... This is a city of Milwaukee that just can't get out of its way. 855-616-1620. Vincent in Lannan. Vincent, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. And that was one, this is one of the reasons why my wife and I moved out from the Northridge area, uh, because the fact is that the city has been dragging its feet with Northridge for the last 20, 30 years. It, 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 it just makes no sense. The fact is either you repurpose it or you tear it down. 
The fact is that uh, in Midtown, they've been trying to do the same thing yeah. in the formal capital court, you know, make it a retail space. And it just it's just not it's just not happening. So the fact is that, no, you need to allow this company to either take it, repurpose it and, and, and try to do something with it or tear the place down and then figure out what you need to do, because it's a basically eyesore and, and, and a danger to the public because people are breaking in there and doing all kinds of things in there. Well, right. So Vin- the, the, right, Vincent, it also seems to me. So, so now you've got this private company that, that's willing to take this problem off their hands. They say, hey, I think we can make a go of this, and the city won't let them do it. Well, because they, they think that there's some other greater purpose. Well, before the city says no to this, they, they should have somebody that really comes out and says, okay, the, these are the people, after we spend the $15 million and tear it down, these these are the businesses that we're going to put in there. Because my guess is there, there's nobody out there right now. You're, it, it's never going to be retail again. You're not going to put hotels out no. there. I mean, it, 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 it's going to be some form of, of light industrial or storage or whatever, assuming you can get something there in the first place. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly what they've done with the old Target over that area. And so and so so the fact is is that no, it's not gonna happen. The city needs to stop dragging its feet. It, it, the fact is that place is, is steadily being deteriorated every day and, and it and it looks like a mess over there because nobody takes care of it. So the city needs to stop doing this and I think the people that live over there need to continue to to, to pound it because uh, I, I don't know what's gonna become of this thing if they don't allow this company to do what it needs to do. Yeah, Vincent, thank, thanks for calling and see look and I understand. See, when you talk about the people, well, I, look, I, I get it. In a perfect world, you would, and, and this this is what happened with this, like Black Spruce Enterprises. You know, whenever they they fall behind or they get trouble, they they trot out these great plans, saying, "Hey, we're going to turn this into an Asian trademark." And they had these these great plans, and then they put them on TV, and then they go interview people in the neighborhood and say, "Oh, this is really great." Well, well, yeah, I, I I get it. I mean, look, I understand the city attorney's office, and I understand the city saying, "Well, we'd really like to have you know something that that promotes jobs, and you know, we don't want just five hundred jobs; we want five thousand jobs or whatever." I get it. But that's not reality. They don't have that there. There's no plans for that. There's no, I mean, maybe there's plans for that. We would like to do this. But there's no realistic plans for this as either. And you look at all the other areas of the city that are eyesores and blighted and things like that. This is a company that's willing to come in and say, okay, this is our use for this property. But what's the old thing? You take a bird in the hand. And the city of Milwaukee is saying, no, 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 no. Well, the city of Milwaukee does this. Then they're going to have to come up with $15 million to tear down the building. And I don't know where that $15 million is going to come from. Nobody seems to know where that $15 million is going to come from. And then what are you going to have? You're going to have torn down buildings on you know 76th and Brown Deer Road with no realistic chance of putting anything else in there. This is crazy with a capital K. I understand you spell crazy, C-R-A-Z-Y. This is just, it is incredibly insane. No, you know, we, we don't want to let this private company buy out Northridge and turn it into industrial storage. We It's not consistent with our plans. We want thriving. We want retail. We want residential and stuff. Okay, well, if there was anybody that wanted that and was willing to step up and, and pay for it, you could have done that over the last 20 or 25 years. So unless the city has some giant master plan that it hasn't shared with anybody, well, why don't you just let the private sector work? 855-616-1620. Ralph in Brown Deer, your neck of the woods. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. You are being kind. 
and calling that place a cesspool, it is worse than that. People are living there, as we know. Fires are being started there, as we know. I've been in that area for 60 years. I watched Northridge grow. I watched it being built. I lived a few blocks away from there. I struggled with the traffic when Northridge was thriving. Mm -hmm. The area has changed. There's no doubt about it. Best Buy is gone. Friday's is gone. All the buildings around there are just struggling to survive. Even the Walmart that was there is gone. Why the city won't allow 500 jobs and a storage place and a company to come in and make something useful there? No, let's spend the taxpayers $15 million and we'll be the government and we'll take over and we'll make it right. And you and I both know that that is going to be a failure. It'll turn into a grassy area. It'll turn into a junkyard. It'll turn into more fires, more problems. It's just, who do we have to talk to? What do we have to do to get this to move forward so that an industrial place can take over? They want to make money there for themselves. So they're going to take care of the place. They're not going to let it go downhill. They're going to, it's going to cost them money to buy and do work up there. It's a business. They want to move forward. They want to thrive and they're going to employ people. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what am I, what a wonder, what a, well, what, a, what a crazy idea. Well, well right. Create jobs. Oh yeah, my gosh. Yeah, Ralph. And see, I guess that that's, I mean, the, the question that should be asked of the mayor and all these people is, okay, what, what is your realistic alternative? Not, oh, you know, we've done the, these visioning things where we've talked to the neighborhood and, and like I say, everybody would love to have Northridge in 1980 five back but but where what is your plan to bring that back and then everybody goes humana humana because it's not happening no, it's yeah. it, that's just the reality nobody has nobody has a plan and it's pie in the sky and oh we're gonna do this well they've had time to do it and nobody's done anything and unfortunately and not throwing stones the businesses that have tried to come up there and do something other than the menards has been successful but other places steins has closed Kohl's yep. has closed Target has closed. across the street. Yeah, is there is there a theme? Is there a <laughs> theme or a message here that somebody can get and say, "Oh, we'll open another Baskin Robbins." Sorry, that's been done. That's down and closed. We'll open another restaurant. Sorry, that's been done. That's closed. Uh, the, yeah. unfortunately, the places that work around there are industrial places. There's a car shop. There's a gas station. Right. Please, City of Milwaukee, who who will listen? And uh, pardon me, but who will have a brain to figure out that right. the government's not going to make this work unless they pour, well, your money and my money into mm-hmm. it? Sure. Right. Okay. Take everybody's money and pour it into it. They have, a, they have an unlimited checking account. They can just go and make this happen. Sorry, that's, right. that, that's not what we're paying our officials to do. Yeah. Think a little bit, please. You want a plan? Plan having a business there that's going to make a plan and make employment and probably they they probably even have green grass and trees go back up there and take care of what the could be oh no no Ralph no thank thanks to call no, again this is and so I mean here's what the city's quote unquote plan is they're going to take fifteen million dollars that they don't have they're going to level the buildings and, and then you're going to have to Ralph's point you have an empty you're going to have an empty lot okay there, there's nothing. Nothing in the works. It's not like, gee, we have all these buyers, we have the, these investors that suddenly who have had no interest in this location for the last twenty some years, but now they're they're going to move in and they're going to generate all these thousands of jobs. If you could, if you could reach into your back pocket and pull out something like that, I would understand it. But there's no there's no alternative to what this company is offering, 
And they're just willing, they're going to say no to this. And they're fighting this. No, we're not going to change the zoning, so we're going to kill this deal, and then there's going to be no alternative. And, and by the way, they, they can't, the judge can't order this foreclosed. It's in the Court of Appeals. So you're probably not going to, you're probably not going to get a decision on this for at least six months. So you're going to go through another six months of the eyesore being there, of it deteriorating, and that's six months at best. And then, so you're, you're probably, then you're starting to look at winter. I mean, if, if they say no to this and don't make the zoning change, I mean, seriously, you're probably looking at no changes to this probably till this time next year, maybe. And, and then again, once you tear it down and you spent the 15 million, who's going to go in there? I mean, that's going to generate these type of, of jobs. You've got the bird in the hand. Some decisions are hard. I get it. Others are just so darn easy, and this is one that's so darn easy, but they're going to screw it up. You just know it. So we're doing this live streaming, and I get people texting, and they're saying, well, we're watching you on the live stream, and, and, and what is it that you're looking at? And it, it's, but this is kind of like being at State Fair, except like every day, and there's, if, if you watch the, the live stream, you can do it through WTMJ.com or through our mobile app and all. I, I'm sitting in front of three computer screens, and the one on my left is the call screen. And then there's the one in, directly in front of me, which is like the computer, and I have five or six or seven different websites that are open. And the one to my right is um, – the one to my right is the call screen. The one to my left is our um, our text line, so I can read the different texts. And then what you can't see on the – TV thing is to the right of that is our, our phone bank. And so if I ever, I'm kind of, they're saying, what are you looking over for? I have to look over and I have to say, oh, it's Charlie from Brown Deer. And I have to push the, the button to bring on Charlie from Brown Deer. And then, of course, we've got like four giant TV screens that are up over to my left. And then there's the clocks that are on the wall. So if, if it's like, well, what are you looking into? It's, it's not like, it's kind of, it's not like when you're on TV where if you're on TV, they've got the camera and there's like the teleprompter that you're reading off of that. So you just look directly into the camera. In this case, you're looking at all these different locations. And so for people who are wondering, what are these different things you're looking at? Well, it's got all these different things that are out in front of me. So check it out. You can follow us on the live stream. It's actually, it's, it's kind of cool. I have to admit, it's like I say, it's like being at state fair every day. Okay. I, um, Told this story. We, um, yeah, who do you know wants to buy a car? And a number of you correctly recognized and remember that. That was the big saying from Ernie von Schladorn, Main Street in Menominee Falls. Who do you know wants to buy a car? Well, this topic is who do you know wants to buy an electric vehicle? The, and if we have talked about before, that the Biden administration is trying to use the power of the EPA to force people to buy electric vehicles and they've got this epa regulation that's that they've rolled out it it, if it goes into effect it would essentially require car manufacturers that about 60 percent of the cars that are sold by 2030 would have to be electric vehicles because otherwise they just couldn't meet these really stringent clean air standards now i don't think that's going to happen i don't think it's practical i I also object to the government trying to force us into electric vehicles when we otherwise don't want to go there. I mean, at some point in time, the problems with electric vehicles um, will the, the cost will come down, various issues will be overcome, and the free market will take over. But we're we're not close to that. And as I said, I've um, I I bought a um, 
I ordered. I, I ordered a car last November. I'm still waiting for delivery. You know, the, I talked to the car dealer the other day, and he said, well, you know, none of these cars have been delivered yet, and, you know, we appreciate people being patient. And I said, uh, Chris, no, 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 you're you're not talking to one of your patient customers now. I'm driving a rental car because I need this. You've got to get me this car sometime in the very, very near future. So he said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll work on that. The car has left the plant in Louisville, and now it's in Chicago somewhere, and maybe you'll have it by the end of the month. I said, well, that's that's... That's okay. Get me the, the car. But when I went and looked at the, these various cars, I, I had no interest in buying an electric vehicle. For you know, and, and I and by the way, I understand, as I said before, that there are many of you, and I, I hear from you every time we do an EV topic. Oh, this is the greatest car in the world, and I love it, and I'm so happy with it. And and that's that's fine. I am not arguing that you should not be able to buy your electric vehicle. I do question whether or not. The taxpayers should be subsidizing your purchase of the electric vehicle by giving you a $7,500 tax credit for a car that costs, well, a crossover that costs $80,000 or less. But that's a whole other story. But I'm, I, again, am a free market guy. And when we went to, when Fran and I went out to look at the car, um, the, the car that I ended up ordering yeah, came in a vehicle, an electric or actually a hybrid. No, I think it might have been a full electric vehicle. And the guy said, are you interested in this? I said, no, that's, let's not even, we don't even have to discuss this. I, I have no interest in this for a variety of reasons. But here's, I wanted to devote a segment to this because there was a story that caught my attention, USA Today. And the headline is, EV sales would have to reach almost unimaginable levels to hit the Biden target. And, and that is... If he wants 60% of the new vehicles sold in this country to be electric vehicles by 2030, you'd have to have an incredible sea change of of buying of buyers' attitudes. Last year, 2022, about 6% of the new cars sold in this country were electric vehicles, which means 94% of the cars sold were were not. And that's up from about 4% a couple years earlier. So people are going to uh, electric, but they're going there slowly. My question to you is, I, I don't, if you own an electric vehicle, that, that's fine. That, that's great. If you do not own an electric vehicle, though, what's it going to take for you to purchase an electric vehicle? In other words, what is your hesitation? If you needed a new car tomorrow, um, what would it take to get you to buy the electric vehicle? 855-616-1620, because ultimately, at the end of the day, you know that, that's what it's going to take. This is about convincing consumers that the electric vehicles are, for whatever reason, superior to the internal combustion engine, to the regular cars. What are you going to need? What would you need to say, okay, I'm going to buy an electric vehicle because there are advantages to it. There's no question about it. My point is, at least for me, the drawbacks to buying an electric vehicle just don't come close to overcoming whatever the positives might be. 855-616-1620. What would it take to get you into an electric vehicle? We discuss in just a moment. Jeff, I'm all for electric cars, but in the cold Wisconsin winter weather, the battery capacity or the distance I can drive is nearly cut in half. So until that's fixed, I'm sticking with my internal combustion 
my regular auto. Well, I think that's it. Jim in Fond du Lac writes, Jeff, my children live all over the country. I want to be able to drive for nine or ten hours without having to stop for the night. My son lives in Colorado Springs. He drives straight through from Colorado Springs to Wisconsin when he visits us. That would not be possible with an electric vehicle. Um, one of our other texters is saying, until they have charging stations all over the country, I, I wouldn't even consider this. Yeah, that's like I say, I, I, I know people that own electric vehicles, and th- what they are is they're they're kind of a, a fun play toy. They they drive them around, you know, locally and things like that. But they have it's their like third car or fourth car in some cases, and they're kind of fun to spin around town in, and they're, they're not, that's all great. But you know, for any sort of practical long range use, they they say no. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's start with Freddie in Illinois. You're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. How you doing, Jeff? I'm good. What would it take to get you hey. into an electric vehicle? Well, a couple things I was telling your producer. First of all, I was think the texter said it. You got to add more hours on to the travel time because I'm going to hour each. Oh. Storm that would make me just ruined. Yeah. As far as my truck, you're going to have to get a lot of power in there, and that's not going to happen to pull a three wheel trailer. And then, last of all, they need a full lifetime warranty on that battery. Yeah, because it costs a lot to replace them. No, thanks, thanks for the call. But I mean, that's it. it, it I think, I, I think distance. I mean, I, I think you know, once they start getting to a point where you can get five hundred miles or so, four or five hundred miles to a particular charge, and I'm including in the cold weather, I, I think you got that. But then there also has to be the quick recharging. I, I mean, I just people uh, look. If if I'm driving from Milwaukee to Florida. And, uh, you, you know, you drive your 400 miles and you pull over to the gas station and you say, OK, here, here's the deal. I'm going to get a cup of coffee and I'm going to go to the bathroom and I'm going to fill the tank up. Well, that, that's a 10 minute process, you know, maybe even less. If you're saying, Jeff, it's going to take you to recharge that car, you're going to have to find the place, find the charger, and you're going to have to kill an hour or two hours or more, it's just not going to happen. It is just not a practical sort of solution. Let's talk to um, Jack in Oak Creek. Jack, you're on WTMJ. I'm with you the same way. Five, 500 miles for me would be the one that I need the minimum of mm-hmm. and being able to do the quick charge. But I think the, the technology is going to get there. I don't have a problem with that at all. My concern is is we. I'm in the same boat you were, uh, or you are, I was. Uh, I needed a car, and they were telling me 14 to 18 months to be able to get even a hybrid at the time. And so, you know, 2013 that, or 2030, that's only seven years away. Yeah. How are they going to do that? Yeah, I can't it, even buy the car now. Well, well, right, and then of course, you know, the the other, the even bigger picture thing is, where are we going to get the electricity? You know, the the electric grid right now. I mean, I understand there's people out there that think that you you push that button on the wall and the electricity magically appears. Well, all right, if we're suddenly going to have you know, 60% of the new cars that are on the road every year starting in 2030 are now going to need to be charged. Where Where is that electricity going to come from? And how are people going to retrofit to put in whatever they need in their different homes? And what about the people who live in apartments and don't have garages? How are they going to charge the car? I mean, I, I agree with you. I think at some point in time in the future, maybe not my lifetime, but some point in time in the future, the technology is going to get there. But I, I just don't see any way in God's green earth it happens. 
uh, on a mass level over the course of the next four or five or six years. Have you seen the sources that they use, like at Myers, to charge them right now? That's a big, you know, that's a big transformer. Yeah. And if you put that kind of electricity usage on the normal grid, yeah. I don't see that either. No, exactly. Much. I mean, thanks for much less people's houses. Are you going to? I mean, if you okay, my my friend who owns one, he owns a Tesla. I have a couple friends who own Teslas, and they, they swear they love them, but they use them, again, they use them for fun cars that, that they spin around in and things like that. They, they don't use them for, I, I don't know, any sort of significant driving. It's great to, hey, you know, we're going to put her around for the day, and we're going to go, you know, run a couple errands, and we're going to stay in the immediate community. But, but I mean, the my, my buddy who has one I'm thinking of, he had a, a special charging thing installed in in his garage now i don't know what it costs to do that but it takes up a lot of space i know they had to do rewiring and things like that but and and he my particular friend has the wherewithal to do this right it was and it's kind of it's a fun little play toy and look and i i ride around the car i haven't driven it but i ride around the car and i get it i mean i understand why it's a fun sort of thing to drive but from a practical perspective for ordinary people other than a second or a third car that might be again this play toy that you have fun with, I don't. I just don't see this, and I don't see it any time in the near future. And the fact that you've got the government, which is trying to force us into this, just let the marketplace take over. Let the marketplace take over, and once the cost comes down and it becomes desirable, us consumers are pretty smart. We will make that choice. Is that too much to ask?